it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 263rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the greatest character actors in the history of the movies, a Swaziland-born Brit who began his film career 32 years ago as the title character in the 1987 cult classic With Nail and I, who subsequently stole scenes in dozens of other titles, and whose most recent role as Jack Hawk another drunk who becomes the co-conspirator of Melissa McCarthy's Lee Israel in Marielle Heller's 2018 dramedy Can You Ever Forgive Me, has landed him the first Golden Globe, Critics' Choice, SAG, BAFTA, Spirit, and Oscar nominations of his career, all in the category of Best Supporting Actor, the great Richard E. Grant. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 61-year-old and I discussed his off-the-wall childhood and how it shaped him, the professional struggles that preceded and fed his breakout performance as With Nail, what he made of his subsequent years in Hollywood, which included the 1991 bomb Hudson Hawk, but also led to collaborations with the likes of Robert Altman, Martin Scorsese, and Francis Ford Coppola, how, after years of working mostly in Europe, he wound up on HBO's Game of Thrones and Girls, then in the Wolverine film Logan, and then in Can You Ever Forgive Me, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to have you here. Thank you very much. We always begin here with just a few basics. And I guess the most obvious question I have to ask is, where does the E come from and why do you keep it around? Because when I began working as an actor and joined the union in England, which is called Equity there rather than Screen Actors mm-hmm. Guild here... I discovered after working for two years that there was another actor who was retired called Richard Grant. He'd had to change his name in 1934 from Peter Grant to Richard because (laughs) there was a Peter. And so Equity said, you've got to do this. And there was an old boiler on the phone who said, make a decision. And I begged her and I said, please, I have no money. My photographs have been printed, my eight by (laughs) tens. I can't afford to change my name. So she said, well, best thing you can do, speak to the actual person who sent in this complaint because he saw your name on a poster. I called him up. He was incredibly gracious. He told me the story that he'd had to change Mm -hmm. his name. And after schmoozing for about 10 minutes, he said, you could put another name in between. And I said, I think that sounds really pretentious. (laughs) Richard, Peter Richard Grant. Um, Could I even just maybe put a letter? And he said, yes, all right. I then phoned Equity straight back, got hold of the same, you know, very bullying woman. And she said, what's the letter? And I was going, R-A-G, R-B-G, R-D-G, R-E. She said, I haven't got all day. And I said, right, ra-har-e-g. So that's, that's how that happened. And then, ironically, I was on a chat show, early morning breakfast chat show in England, with Bob Geldof's ex-wife, Paula Yates, who had a breakfast show in bed. You literally lay in, <laughs> lay in bed with her. And there was a live phone-in section. Most of the people were on coke at the time. You know, it, was the, it was the 80s when this was going on. She phoned in and she said, hello, it's Richard Grant's widow. Richard died six months ago. You can now drop the E, <laughs> by which time I sort of established that that was my professional name. So, oh, my anyway, God. That's a very long no, answer to your short question. No, it's great. So one thing I had read, though, was what was your birth name? My birth name is Richard Grant Esterhusen. So it's just a coincidence that that was the E. Absolutely. That's okay. how it happened. It could have been D. Got it. Got if she'd it. stopped me before and said, oh, B, <laughs> I could have been Richard B. Grant by this time. But. So uh, where were you 
born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born and raised in Mbaban, Swaziland, which has now changed its name to Eswatini, which is the smallest country in the Southern Hemisphere. It's wedged between Mozambique and South Africa, in Southeast Africa. It's a population of one million people. My father was the director of education when it was still under British protectorate rule, and my stepmother was a psychologist. My real mother was an accountant. Yes. Talk a little bit about your childhood growing up there. It's during the last sort of gasp of the empire. It's a time when your father, as you mentioned, was a minister, but was keen on making you aware from things you've you've written. I understand about, you know, you always were aware that you were a guest in Africa. You should behave accordingly. Some of your classmates were the children of Nelson Mandela. It was a pretty interesting way to grow up, I would imagine. It was, and it's it's one of those things that you only realise in retrospect that it was an unusual kind of childhood because when you're in the middle of it, it seems perfectly normal that there are vervet monkeys at the bottom of your garden <laughs> and there are cobras that come out in the summer when it's hot and if you've got rid of one of them, you've got to be careful because its mate is going to become looking for it and will be really angry. <laughs> so all that stuff, you know, when you're living in London then that is not what, in an urban landscape, you don't face in the same way. Mm -hmm. And also, what we were aware of, lest you think I'm just being flippant, is that Zinzi and Zeli Mandela, who were Nelson Mandela's daughters, who I did school plays with, they could only visit their father once a year mm -hmm. in Robben Island, mm -hmm. which was this prison island off Cape Town, which is 1,200 miles south of Swaziland. So knowing that they could only see their parents once a year affected everybody in our school, which was multi-ethnic, multi-faith. Everybody was, it was multi-tolerant, if you like. So that really was a kind of benchmark for, I suppose, the ethos of the school, that you thought, well, you have to fight injustice and be inclusive forevermore because mm -hmm. it is the only way to be. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of, of interesting or unusual situations with, with parents, you have written about and, and actually made a film about the fact that, or that dealt with the fact that at the age of just 10, you're in the backseat of a car, thought to be asleep, and find out that your mother is having relations in the front with someone who is not your father, which was jarring for, it would be jarring for anyone. And I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise then that not long after your parents split up, how did that impact them in the way that they then became after that? And how did it impact you having to spend the remainder of your childhood growing up in those dynamics? Well, Dr. Frog, <laughs> thank you for opening me up so forensically on air. Um, I had a nervous breakdown when I was 42 and I had an absolutely brilliant American psychoanalyst called Christopher Bolas, who now lives in Santa Barbara, who I'm going to see next week, mm -hmm. who spent 18 months unpicking my very, very dysfunctional adolescence, which you have just <laughs> laughingly <laughs> exposed. Thank you very much. No, what happened is that I couldn't tell my parents, I couldn't tell my friends, I tried God, didn't get an answer, so I started keeping a diary when I was 11 years old and have kept one ever since mm -hmm. as a way of trying to understand the world. I suppose witnessing that cataclysmic moment, if you like, mm -hmm. where you know you're seeing something that you're not supposed to have seen, mm -hmm. and then the subsequent plunge of my father into real violent alcoholism by night and charm and normalcy by day after my mother left meant that I've I sort of had a fast track into having an adult viewpoint on things mm -hmm. I was very aware that things that are childlike or childish in your life are completely in contrast to the sort of the cynical adult world that is out there. So that divide has w was very, very clear. So I suppose that feeling of being forced into being an outsider on the inside of your own life mm -hmm. has really characterised the way I view the world and my experience of it. And I suppose then emigrating the age of 25 from Africa to coming to live in England meant that there, again, you are a kind of outsider looking in. And there's a great quote from the English writer Kipling who said, how can he, England, know who only knows England? Mm -hmm. Which I think just very aptly describes what it is that even though you identify completely culturally with somewhere, there's still a sense that 
you're a tourist in your own country mm-hmm. and culture somehow. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, for the record, because yeah. I think it's in some ways the the craziest moment of a pretty crazy youth, childhood rather, what was it that happened at 14 or 15 that was sort of the low point, I would think? Okay, I have two answers to that. Okay. And one is very opposite to today. When I was 14, I wrote a fan letter to Barbara Streisand, (laughs) and I tweeted that today, having gone to Malibu yesterday on my day off. Right. And I parked outside her house, and I took a selfie with the permission of the security, (laughs) who said, it's a public space, you do not need permission, but thanks for asking. And I posted this, plus the letter. Tagging her. Tagging her. And today, completely, you know, to my utter and bewildering astonishment, she replied on Twitter and great, didn't yeah. call security, which is an <laughs> astonishment to me. So I'm not in jail, which I can speak to you now. Right. But simultaneously, that same year that I wrote that letter, in order to try and stop my father, who I absolutely adored, um, he died at the age of 53, essentially of a broken heart. He drank himself to death. I emptied a crate of his scotch whiskey down the sink mm-hmm. in order to try and, you know, innocently try and stop him drinking. Mm-hmm. He took a gun to my head and threatened to blow my brains out and because he was so drunk he wavered and the shot that went off you know missed me by millimeters but you really i'm here today he was trying to hit you oh he was he absolutely told me that that's what he was going to do and then i ran away for a week and came back and of course he had no recollection of having done it whatsoever but you know my stepmother was there and she, she ran to the garden once she heard all this cacophony going on so that was yeah I mean I can talk about it now but that was a sort of seminal moment I thought this is I'm dealing with something that is completely out of control yeah now I guess a question I should ask is which of those two moments that you just described came first did the incident with the gun precede the letter to Barbara Streisand and I'll tell you there's a reason why I'm asking but which which came first do you remember Dr. Freud, you're grilling me now. (laughs) The letter came first. Okay, so you were already thinking that performing had a certain allure to you even before the... Or the idea of a public performer had an allure and appeal to you, even in Swaziland, which didn't have TV until the 80s. All of this, just that that seemed appealing to you. It wasn't like you got... You were drawn to that as just a way of getting out of the situation. No, no, no. I was. I. I had shoebox theatres that I made. You know, from shoeboxes with scenery painted on the back and a bedside lamp, making a little hole in the top, and lollipop sticks with cut-out figures on them. That was the, the first thing I did, and I have photographs of that from when I was seven years old. Then I progressed to glove puppets, which I made, then string puppets, marionettes, which I then got every Christmas and birthday as presents from my parents, and I had a full-size puppet theatre in my garage, and I used to do kids' shows you know, in the holidays to earn money for my record and book collection, <laughs> as it was in those days. And then I was involved in school plays, and I wrote plays, and did the amateur theatre club with adults, so it was a very clear progression of wanting to pursue that. But the notion that I could actually succeed or make a living out of it is what really concerned my father because he was in education and he thought there was no precedent of that in my family and thought that, yeah, he used to jokingly say, you will live a life in destitution wearing makeup, tights and avoiding being sodomized." <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> These three terrors were yes. the terrors for him, right. um, all of which have come true. So, as you can see, right. I stand ruptured, made up, and in her leg tight as we speak. We talked about the fact when you were nice enough to do the AFI Fest panel that I do each year back in November, mm-hmm. that you then went off to the University of Cape Town. Hold uh, on, I have to stop you there, yes. because you predicted to me, to my face when I first met you, with your mother, that I would be coming back here probably until late February, and I thought that you were completely <laughs> insane, and that I am here now, and that all of those things have come true. You have the crystal ball, so well, thank uh, for you. which I'm very grateful. Well, I'm, I'm, I would feel horrible if I had been wrong, so I'm glad, I'm glad I've been proven right, but that's a testament to you and what we'll come to in a little bit about your work and can you ever forgive me? But I guess I want to ask you about UCT because when I was talking to you with my 
mother at that thing. And you when know, you say UCT, you mean the University, University of Cape, of Cape, Cape Town. Town right. Yeah, where she had also gone, my mom. And the thing that happened there for you was you actually studied drama, I think, for the first time in any mm-hmm. serious way, yeah. as well as English. What sort of feedback were you getting there? I know you were also doing things... I guess it would be extracurricularly, you know, with a theater troupe. How important were the years at UCT? Absolutely the kind of crucible of how to start a career, really, because we had a brilliant teacher who the improvisation classes from then directly affected my ability or confidence or whatever you call it to work with Robert Altman who was the great improviser director in movies and so I got to work with him three times and I'd seen Nashville 27 times in a bug house repertory theatre which was across the road from the drama school which you had to pay for you know it's pre-cable pre-video or anything you had to go and you know buy the tickets to go and see it so I was absolutely obsessed with that when I enrolled at the university in 1976 it was the year that within two weeks of being at the university Black Africans, teenage students, went on the rampage and in the streets to protest being taught in the oppressor language of Afrikaans. Mm-hmm. So we literally felt that we were, you know, I was 18 years old, that it was the crucible of revolution and history was, was going to be made mm-hmm. in that moment. And, of course, it took another 14 years before it actually yes. happened. But yes. just being there at that time felt incredibly momentous mm-hmm. and exciting and mm-hmm. we were all absolutely charged up in a way that you know, I thought well you know this is it mm-hmm. it's finally justice is coming mm-hmm. so but to answer your question I blathered on no, that's good. my final assessment from the drama professor they mean this in a very caring and sharing way because they want to be as realistic about your prospects as possible he said you clearly have shown talent as a writer and a director here and I think that is what your career path is going to be, because I'd co-founded a theatre company Mm -hmm. called the Troop Theatre Company with a group of drama students that I'd been working with over four years. And he said, I don't think that you really are cut out or going to make it as an actor because you look too weird. (laughs) You're a face that is like like tombstone features and you just look weird and you're very, very pipe cleaner thin. So, of course, when... I was then cast in my first movie in 1986 Mm -hmm. called Withnell and I Mm -hmm. playing an out-of-work actor... Every single review that I can remember that came out said Tombstone featured, <laughs> Lantern Jawed, Bug Eyed, Undertaker's Assistant, all of this stuff. And I thought, well, he was right about that, but wrong about, <laughs> about the fact the that I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to you know, crack a career at That's it. That's so funny. And I know that I, one of the things I came across preparing for this was that a great inspiration to you growing up, even before becoming a professional actor, was Donald Sutherland. He was. Why was that? Well, he was over six foot tall. Right. He wasn't from Hollywood. He has a very, very long face. Yes. And, uh, you, you look for role models. <laughs> and he had a sort of very distinct oddball voice. And I'd see him in Robert Auburn's MASH and in, in Kelly's Heroes. And he didn't fit the mould of an actor in that he didn't look like Robert Redford or Paul Newman, who right. were the, you know, the gods at that time. Right. I thought, well, if he can get work as an actor, then maybe there's a chance <laughs> that I can get work as an actor right. in the theatre. It didn't really cross my mind that it would be possible to ever be in a movie because mm-hmm. it's, it was so beyond... That, that's what happened overseas or right. in America or in Hollywood, which was this fabled land on the other side of the planet. Well, so after graduating from UCT, having, I guess, at that point resolved that this was, in fact, going to be what you're going to pursue professionally, you did not come to Hollywood. You went to London. And in fact, I guess I want to ask you what it was like when you got there. But literally when you got there, I think on a fairly historically significant day, just that and going forward, you know, life in England for those five years before getting a movie. Oh, when I when I got there, I got there on the 25th of April in 1982, just as the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was sending troops to the South Atlantic to fight Argentina about <laughs> the... Know, Falkland. Yeah, yeah, the Falkland Islands, which I had never heard of, and <laughs> right. certainly anybody in England that I knew had never heard of. Right. But it was part of this Churchillian jingoism that she was... You know, she pursued in order to try and save her political skin. And when she tried the same tactics eight years later for the Iraq war, people went, uh-uh, yeah. we're not having that all over again. Right. You're out. And for you, though, now, what, you know, coming into... So I was a waiter. I was a waiter in, in a Brasserie in Covent Garden, which is still there, called right. Tutton's, for seven months. And then I threw that in and then started <laughs> life as an actor. Prior to With Nail and I, which I'll ask you about in a moment, that came about four or five years into being there. Yeah. What was going on in the time between then? 
I started getting theatre work, and the most significant job I had when I was 27 was playing Lysander in A Midsummer Night's Dream in the equivalent of the Central Park Open Air Shakespeare Company mm -hmm. Theatre. There's one in Regent's Park in London, mm -hmm. which is an open air theatre in the summer, and I was cast opposite Natasha Richardson, who just turned 21 and was very determined not to let anybody know that she was Tony Richardson and Vanessa Redgrave's daughter, right. of course, for obvious reasons. Right. So we became great friends. That was my professional proper break. Mm -hmm. And then I did a film for the BBC, improvised film called Honest, Decent and True about the advertising industry amongst a cast, ensemble cast, which included Aid Edmondson, who is a comic actor in England, and Gary Oldman who had already established himself as, you know, a real comer on the Royal Court British stage. Mm -hmm. That was made at the beginning of 1985, followed by nine months of unemployment. And I thought, I will never work again because your self-esteem is decimated because I found in my experience that there's a common denominator with actors of having this odd combination of large ego coupled with low self-esteem. On the one hand, you're saying, choose me over anybody else. And then the moment you've got the job, you think, I feel I'm not worthy. And I see this in actors all the time, with few exceptions. Right, right, right. So I know it's a contradiction. The day that they screened this honesty, decent and true on a Sunday night in mm. England in January 1986, I got a new agent the following day who then introduced me to a legendary casting director called Mary Selway in England, who's now passed. And she put me in front of a writer-director called Bruce Robinson. Let me stop you there if I can, just because I want to give the full background for a listener before we have you go further. He's a former actor at that point, best known for Truffaut, the story of Adele H., Writer, best known for The Killing Fields just before that. And at that point, when his stock was probably at its hottest up to that point, they say, what do you want to do? And he wanted to adapt and for the first time direct his own novel of 15 years earlier with Neil and I and needs to go casting about for who's going who's gonna to be in this. How did it first cross your radar? And what was the process to, to playing this title character? What, what happened was that... Mary Selway told me that they had been trying to cast this part for two months. Yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis, who'd opened in the States simultaneously on the same day in Room of the View and playing an Edwardian esthete and a gay punk South Londoner with dyed blonde hair in My Beautiful Laundrette, Stephen Freer's film. Those movies opened on the same day and the critics literally couldn't believe that it was the same actor. So he was as hot as you could possibly get. So Withnail, Mercy for Me, was one of the scripts that he turned down. Mm -hmm. As a result... The director then saw for two months every English actor possible, and I could name them, but I would—they were—they were all really well-known people. Can we just say one? Kenneth Branagh, right? Kenneth Branagh, but Bill Nye, up, down, right. and sideways. Right. None of them, according to Bruce Robinson, made him laugh or delivered any of the dialogue as he imagined it in his head. I then arrived, I was wearing a 1940s second-hand raincoat that I got from a charity shop, and I was carrying a leather-bound copy of Robinson Crusoe, which I was reading on the subway to get there. And between the subway and the place where I was having the audition, a monsoon deluge of rain broke out, and so I arrived literally like a drowned water rat. <laughs> I said, I'm so sorry to marry myself the casting director. She said, no, no, darling, you absolutely... This is, this is the perfect of what you're supposed to look like. So I then met Bruce... And he said, what the fuck? She said, what, what, what do you look like? And I said, well, this... And they said, what are you reading? I said, Robinson Crusoe. Uh, then just a sheer ridiculousness. I said, it's a novel by, <laughs> by Defoe. And he said, yeah, I'm a f familiar with that. So he said, what do you think of the script? I said, it was really funny. He said, will you read? So I did. I said two words, fork it. Fork it. Fork it, yeah. Yeah. And somehow the script went flying out of my hand, my fingers went missiling towards his eyes, and he laughed. I didn't know at the time that it was the first time he had laughed, right. anybody doing his script in two months. So as a result of those two words, I was then called back the next day and then every day for two weeks. I then was auditioning with other actors, and I thought at this point having never been up for a film audition in my life, that they were using me as a kind of stool pigeon because they'd cast my part and I was being used to read in while the actual actor had got it, was, you know, sunning himself in Miami <laughs> on a mobile phone somewhere. So I then got cast and when that movie came out, it literally changed my professional life completely and entirely. And But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. So you're playing a struggling actor. Out-of-work actor. Out-of-work yep. actor, inspired by... 
apparently the real British actor, Vivian Mac McCarroll. Yeah. This struggling actor with his pal spends basically all of his time drinking, bitching, and fighting, uh, right? I mean, uh, and they taking take, drugs. And taking drugs. Yeah. And just, There's no plot. There's no plot, but it, people, you know, just die laughing at the situations and the dialogue. And again, this is you in your first film role. The great irony, which I'll, we'll just get it out of the way now because I know it's probably the thing you're asked about the most. You're playing an absolute alcoholic. Yeah. And yet. Allergic to alcohol. You yourself had, had alcohol, what, like once in your life? Yeah. The director insisted that I, I drink on the night before the penultimate rehearsals before we started shooting up in the Lake District in the north of England, that he said, you have to have a chemical memory of what it is like to be absolutely bladder drunk. So I said, well, I don't really need to do that because my father's an alcoholic. And I assumed when I was 17 that it was psychosomatic, that I couldn't keep alcohol down. I went to a doctor, had blood test, and he said, you have no enzyme in your system. You can never drink. It's completely toxic to you. Mm. So Bruce insisted and... I then spent a whole night trying to get a bottle of champagne down my face. I managed, you know, kept throwing up, drinking, throwing up, throwing up. So when I was driven to the studio the next morning, I was almost paralytically drunk and managed to get through about half half an hour's worth of the dialogue, at which Paul McGann, who was playing the other part, yes. and Bruce Robinson were hysterically laughing at me, and then I passed out. I woke up in my own bed 24 hours later. So that was your sense of what it is to, to be drunk? Uh, yeah. But I guess another question, this film sort of established you as a guy who is very funny. Did you have a comedic bent before? Would you have guessed that if you made it in the movies, it would be in a comedic part? No, I had no, no idea what, whatsoever. No, no preparation for that at all. And you have said that during... I thought I was going to spend my whole life doing Chekhov in the theatre. Really? Yeah. And, and you had said that even throughout the making of With Nell and I... You didn't really even expect that it would be released, much less become this cult classic that still has people quoting it 32 years later. Well, there was an American producer who worked for Handmade Films, and he ran Handmade Films that George Harrison founded and financed. And he said that this film is unreleasable, it's unfunny, the title is unpronounceable, <laughs> there are no women in it, there are no car chases. And in 1986, when we were shooting it, Crocodile Dundee was the big big global hit and he said and there are no crocodiles or australians <laughs> so we thought we were absolutely you know snookered right. there was no chance that the movie was ever going to come out and they said he also said there's no plot right and there's nobody that we've ever heard of in the movie i thought that we were done for when it was actually released i don't know that it was a commercial triumph or anything but it's still to this day very popular. So it's sort of one of these things that over time has endured. So what do you attribute that to? I, I... Scott, it came out in 1987. And I think it showed in about three movie houses in New York and maybe one in LA. I don't know, because I didn't come yeah, to America yeah, yeah. for the release or anything. And in England, it played for about three weeks in a few cinemas, it got mediocre reviews, and just disappeared. It then, with the advent of video, mm -hmm students started watching it late night and because they followed the two characters who drink and smoke an enormous amount of dope in the movie, they copied drink for drink, drug for drug in the movie and it became a kind of rites of passage thing that happened at colleges, end of high school. So from that, it then got re-released 10 years after it was first released and got a proper audience. Mm -hmm. And what was so satisfying is that almost without exception... The reviewers that dismissed it or were lukewarm about it then re-reviewed it and said, oh, it has improved like a fine wine. And you go, it's the same movie. Right. Not, not a frame of it has changed, but your perception of, of it course. has changed. And so it's been one of the slowest burns ever. It's so, amazing. You know. One write-up said, quote, Withnail became an anti-hero for the angry youth of Thatcher's reign, close quote. Do you think that's over-analyzing it? Or you think yes, completely, because yeah. the bottom line of it is that more than anything, it is a rites of passage movie, I think, from what I've gleaned from what people have told me, and people have written a thesis on yeah. it. Because it's that cusp between being an adolescent and having to take responsibility of some sort as an adult and the kind of nuclear fallout that happens to people that aren't able to do that, right. which is the titular character of Withen, is unable to do that. Yes. That's an experience that 
almost every person goes through. And because it's about a friendship that then falls apart, you know, that's another thing, common denominator. It also has very quotable dialogue. So there's not a day that goes by in England. The weird thing about this is that it seems to be divided into the point point zero 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 one percent of people in Britain who have seen the movie and are completely obsessed with it and the other 99% who've never heard of it and have no interest in it whatsoever. So there's no there's no in between. Well, People it, are either fanatical or couldn't care. It sort of seems to me like the closest parallel in in America would be The Big Lebowski. Yeah, right? absolutely right. Yeah. Well, anyway, so you and Bruce then reunited, I think it was like two years later for another film, How to Get Ahead in Advertising. You know, it's lesser known. And I know that you, though, wanted to keep working with him. It was a nice relationship. However, has he made just one more film since then? He made a thriller called Jennifer Eight for Paramount Studios with Uma Thurman and Annie Garcia. And then there was a great long period where he rewrote or wrote screenplays that didn't get made, which is not uncommon. Then he wrote a novel... And then he adapted The Rum Diary, Hunter S. Thompson's, yeah. um, with Johnny Depp. And that yes. was the last thing that oh, he that directed. Him, right? yep. So, so it's are you my still... loss that I've never done the trio films with him because he's always said to me that I am the one actor that has said the dialogue as he imagines it yeah. in his head. So I've been his kind of doppelganger on screen. but And you guys are still in touch? Would you... you know... Oh, yeah. See each other all the time. People have suggested over the years somewhat of a, a sequel or, or something to with Nail and I, but... What I did not realize is that in a scene that I guess did not make the film, mm-hmm. he says that Withnail essentially blew his brains out, right? Yeah. At the end of his novel that he wrote, yeah. he did blow his brains out in the final page of the, of the novel. And in real life, the, the actor that it was based on, Vivian McCarroll, never worked as an actor. I think he did a small part in one movie in about 1973. Mm-hmm. He died of throat cancer in, at the age of 49 and was so... So committed to drinking and smoking that even though he had a voice box, he used to put the cigarette in the sort of hole in his throat. And he also had a pipe that went into his stomach, which he would pour neat Scotch whiskey down. Oh my so, god! So you know, oh he he god. came to a very bitter, unfulfilled right. end. Well, hopefully, you guys find something else you can you can do again. But let's talk about what those years immediately after with Nail and I were like for you, because suddenly you are on the radar of people in Hollywood and around the world. And I know you had a complicated relationship with Hollywood over the next few years. I guess it was a combination of European and American films. Initially, it seems like it was Henry and June and L.A. Story, the latter of which was the beginning of your good friendship with Steve Martin, which it was so kind of nice and full circle that he presented you with your New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Supporting Actor this year. But the big one that people do probably remember most was Hudson Hawk, mm-hmm. also released in 1991, directed by Michael Lehman, produced by Joel Silver and starring Bruce Willis, a big budget bomb in which you and Sandra Bernhardt played billionaire villains. You kept a diary, actually, through, obviously you've said for most of your life, but certainly through the making of that film. So I guess if you were to look back at that particular period in the diary, what's the gist of what you experienced? Well, thank you for bringing up this <laughs> moment of profound professional shame, which the plus side of it is that I've had, you know, three decades long friendship with Sandra Bernhardt, who we played husband and yes. wife team, out of that. On the disc staff, I've never, ever been employed again by Mr. Silver yeah. and Mr. Willis.com. So uh, it was, you know, I think that it was an absolutely classic case of the movie Die Hard 2 had taken a gazillion dollars at the box office while we were shooting this movie. They were untouchable as a producer and star. It was Bruce's pet project in which he was, you know, he was basically given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And the problem with that is that you fly too close to the sun, you get burned, mm-hmm. just out of you know the sheer pride and hubris of it. So he got very, very burnt, and it, you know, it famously went out of control and way over budget. Was it fun for you, or was did you see it was a, a crashing? It was like a car crash very, very soon. <laughs> and how the barometer of that is always when a script is you know 105 pages of white print, right? Black, you know, 
typeface on white print. Mm -hmm. And within a very, very short space of time, you've got a Crayola box <laughs> color of rewrites, inserts, and changes. You know that you're up the old mm, creek without any paddle or rudder. So that's what happened. Right. And it really suffered from multiple directors trying to pull in all different directions. So I felt enormous sympathy for Michael Lehman because, right. you know, here was a guy who'd had great success with Heathers, yeah. you know, which I really admired, you know, an indie movie that was a big success. And Dan, who'd written yeah. such a great screenplay, it then got rewritten on a daily basis by different hands. So, <laughs> you know, it didn't, it, it couldn't possibly succeed. You know, I, I say all this, I, I met Bradley Cooper on the, at the SAG, you know, on the red carpet. And he, he leaned into me and he said, I have to tell you, I loved Hudson Hawk. <laughs> so I said, were you on heavy medication yeah. <laughs> at this point in time? And he said, I'm not prepared to say. <laughs> well, I mean, so, it, was you know, a, go figure. it was a good introduction to what the Hollywood machine can do to movies. It's very different. Scott, than I thought I would never work again. And when I was at the premiere, yeah. it was an extraordinary experience because we were in the exact same movie theater in Brentwood where I'd been with all the cast and the production team for... Die Hard 2. Mm -hmm. That's when I just done my deal and it all got started. So you were invited you know, to that the honeymoon premiere. period. Right. And people literally, it was Mexican wave time at the end of that movie for Die Hard 2. People were climbing over their show, you know, over seats right. to get to Bruce Willis and Joel Silver. Right. Same theater a year later. <laughs> and I kid you not, talk about special effects. Right. By the time the lights came up, there was not a human being. <laughs> in the auditorium. They had just disappeared. <laughs> and just to give you a real idea about it, they had a huge party with, you know, lobster and shrimp and all the right. paraphernalia of wealth and deliciousness that you could hope for. And the only celebrity that turned up was John Travolta. <laughs> and this was John Travolta in the pre-Look Who's Talking years right. when he was unarrestable. Right. If you can even imagine that point in time. Right. So That wasn't and a great at the, at the Before the screening started... Yeah. I'd seen it with Annie McDowell. We'd been you know, forced to go and watch this mm -hmm. thing with our agents and came out almost suicidal, <laughs> literally, because we thought this was the end of our careers. Right. I had a tap on the shoulder. It was Tim Robbins and Bob Altman, who I'd met on a movie that then never got made a couple of years before right. about the um, composer Rossini, which collapsed. And he said, what are you doing, E. Grant? And I said, oh, hold on. Because he always called me E. Grant. Right. I said, what are you doing here, Bob? He said, we're about to watch this movie. I said, you will not speak to me by the time the credits roll. He said, no, 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 we're here for research. And I said, why? He said, because I'm doing a movie called The Player about Hollywood and I want you <laughs> to play one of the screenwriters who does this pitch. Are you free in a month's time? I said, once you see this movie, you may change your mind. I think I'm free for the rest of my life. I'll be retired off like old Dobbin the Donkey. And he was true to his word. He did come through. Yeah, so The he Player did. was uh, yeah, released just a year later. That's the first of your three with him. I think you've called him your, your certainly at one point he was your favorite director to yeah. work with. Yeah. The other two, Fred Porter in 1994, Gosford Park in 2001. What was it th about him that, that caused you two to hit it off? I mean, he'd always had great, quote unquote, character actors mm -hmm. populating his films with overlapping dialogue and all the improvisation, things that you do so well. But what, what do you attribute it to? Okay, first of all, he loves actors, right? Yeah. Secondly... He likes people who are of the pipe cleaner, long-faced variety. <laughs> and by this, I mean Shelley Duvall, right. Keith Carradine, Sutherland, you know, Elliot Gould, yeah. up down as a Jeff Goldblum. Right. There, are, there are a lot of them. And he's also very loyal to actors. He uses right. them again and again. And because he goes for character actors rather than movie stars, mm -hmm. he knows he can get us cheap and that we're, <laughs> you know, more than happy to work for him. Right. So... I, th I think it was that. And we just we just got on instantaneously. And I fell in love with his wife, Catherine, and we stayed great friends up until both of them passed. Right. Well, I believe it was while you were at a party for the player that you first met Winona Ryder, which yes. happened to be something that led to a number of things. Can you just, <laughs> of all of all people, why was Winona Ryder the, you know, responsible for some of your other next big movies? Okay, there was a talent manager called Keith Addis, 
who I've never seen since, but I'm sure he's still here. <laughs> he held a party, and it's the first time I'd been to a party where they had valet parking. That was a complete <laughs> new concept to me. You can tell you how naive I was for coming from Swaziland. It was up above Sunset, opposite Chin Chin. Right. I went there, and I walked into a room, and literally I felt like my head going up, down, and sideways because every single person was Whippy Goldberg, right. Warren Beatty. Uh, every person in the room was famous. Mm-hmm. And Winona Ryder came up to me and said... She was 19, and she said, you've got to be in Dracula. I'm about to do it at Francis Ford Coppola. And she said, I know my boyfriend and I, who happened to be Johnny Depp at that time, <laughs> know every single line of a movie that you did called With Nell and I. So at the at the very moment she was fan, fan, fan worshipping at yeah, me, yeah, yeah. which I understand is a cul-de-sac because you don't know anything about this person's right. life, but they know a lot about yours. Right, right. So while she was telling me this stuff, and I was very flattered, out of the right-hand corner of my eye... I see Barbara Streisand across the room, <laughs> at which point, as you will appreciate from the beginning of this conversation, yes. I almost levitated right. on my skin. And I said to the hostess, I said, is it possible at all? And Rosanna Arquette yes. was standing with Winona and she said, oh, I know her. I know her because she used to go out with a guy that I knew, oh uh, James Newton Howard. Yeah. So she went and spoke and yada, yada, yada. So I was then introduced to her and I spoke to her for 22 minutes and basically did what Winona had been doing to me. Just fan fanboying Just now. fanny, but yeah. she was so smart. She did, Barbara Streisand did say to me, are you stoned? And I said, I came with this terrible cheesy line. I said, no, I'm just absolutely overwhelmed to meet you. <laughs> and I spoke to her for 22 minutes. And she was, of course, being who she is and being having been famous all her life. She was very, very smart at waylaying and getting me out of the sort of fan stage. And, right. and I had told her that I'd just seen a preview of Prince of Tides yes. that a friend of mine, Becky Johnston, had written the screenplay for. Okay. So she had something to ask me about. So I did find myself with this out-of-body experience saying, what do you think the scene here when I was using the music with Nick Nolte? And I said, Barbara... <laughs> just, I'm so ashamed to say this. I said, Barbara, I think that at this point in that scene, you don't need it to be underscored because the acting is doing it all. She said, oh, you think so? You think so? Thought, oh, You're God. giving notes you know, to your hero. Of course, I know that she asked many people their opinions, right. but it was an out-of-body experience. No, it's amazing. So, the fact, though, that Winona was such a fan of yours led to which subsequent projects? Because but- I was then on... Uh, Coppola's Dracula, yep. again working with Gary Oldman, since almost decent and true in 1985, this was now 1990, Winona said, I'm doing Age of Innocence straight after this. Mm-hmm. You have to meet Marty Scorsese. <laughs> so essentially, Winona Ryder has been my quasi-agent <laughs> stroke manager publicist 25 years. In, the, in the early 90s. <laughs> right. And actually, Age of Innocence, to just bring it full circle again, now it's you and Daniel Day-Lewis. Did you oh, happen yeah. to mention anything to him about Whitnail? Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> on the first day, we were shooting in New York. It was freezing cold. The generator broke down on the first day, which sent Martin Scorsese into a complete tailspin. And I was summoned by an assistant to go to Daniel Day-Lewis's Winnebago. <laughs> so I went in. I prostrated myself in front of him and I said, oh, Daniel, thank you for giving me my career because you turned down Withnail. And he was very gracious and he said, arise, arise. <laughs> and then we had about I don't know, three or four hours literally talking nonstop because we found out that we knew a whole lot of people in common mm-hmm. and friends in common and blah, 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 crowds of paths had never crossed. Basically contemporaries, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's, I think he's two days older than me. Wow. Or younger than me or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So once the generator was on, the next day when we began working, he didn't greet me. And I greeted him and I said to Michelle Pfeiffer and Winona Ryder, I said, do you know something that I don't know? Because 24 hours that this man has gone from being so open warm, sesame yeah. to literally I station zebra. They said, no, no, he's a method actor and you are playing his enemy in the story. He will not speak to you and he didn't for the next three wow. months and it was very discombobulating because if you've had that kind of real instant connection with somebody and then you are blanked it's very disconcerting so i avoided his eyeline keeping out of his way the whole time and then i finished shooting a week before he did with the late alec mccown who was another english actor both of whom were his enemies in the story and Martin Scorsese said, ah, and this is the last day of Alec and Richard. A round of applause that the crew automatically give you, I think, more more often than not, good riddance that they've got two <laughs> actors out of the way. We're closer to the rap. And Daniel broke out of character as Archer 
and came over and flung his arms around both of us and said what a privilege it was to work with us and how thrilled he was and we were just completely <laughs> flabbergasted right. like you know well it'd been slapped in the face by a wet fish and that's the last time i saw him so really i had the full measure of the what it is to be with a method actor wow well you never stopped cold turkey appearing in hollywood american productions but it became less frequent over over the years as, as around the turn of the century you were doing more in Europe, I think, and, mm -hmm. and where you now lived in London, I guess. That very much coincided with the fact that my daughter was now going to full-time school. Okay. So being able to just pick her up and say, we're going to L.A. for two months or New York or whatever, was no longer practical. Sure. So so I was subscribed by, by school holidays sure. and then subsequent college. So that, that affected my decisions as well. Totally. And in fact, uh, another decision she affected, I believe, was Spice Girls movie. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes, bring them all. Yes. Hudson Hawk, the Spice World movie. You want me to try and sound like a credible thespian here? No, no, no. She was eight years old. She saw, you know, in those days it was an answer machine, a message blinking saying, your agent has an offer for you to play the Spice Girls manager in a movie. And she just said to me, Dada, if you, if you get offered ten movies for Disney, I don't care. You have to work with the Spice, the Spice Girls so that I can go and visit them. So I did, and I had an absolute great time with them. I got very, very critically mauled by <laughs> critics and fellow lofty thespians for saying, you know, how can you sell yourself out to do that? But, but a generation later, oh, it paid dividends, it. right? Yeah, paid dividends, you know, 20 years later. Lena Dunham didn't know me from Withnail, <laughs> which had got me practically out of the job. Right. She knew me from Spice World, the movie. So I ended up, she wrote me into four episodes of Girls, and then Adele with whom I share a birthday, but not the same bank account, she's, <laughs> she sent me tickets because she's a Spice World fan as well to go and see her sold-out show in London. So, That's so it was double win-win. One thing that did bring you back to L.A. was something in 2006, and that was the first film that you personally wrote and directed called Wawa about your childhood. It was very well-reviewed. I want to quote what the L.A. Times critic wrote, quote, in his writing, Grant makes use of the same keen sense of observation that made his published film Diaries with Nails and Novel by Design so amusing. He also shows that his time on the sets of directors Bruce Robinson, Robert Altman, Francis Ford Coppola, and Martin Scorsese, and others, was well spent. The film is crisply directed and well paced, close quote. So what was it like making this film where you're revisiting the dark childhood that we talked about earlier, and then also what was it like just actually doing what your college professor said you should have been focusing on, which was writing and directing. This feels so uh, so odd to have a one-way conversation where you're you're <laughs> giving me all, and I can't ask you stuff back that I want to ask. Um, but I understand that that's not how we're supposed to do it. <laughs> Just feels very odd. Anyway, writing the screenplay and revisiting all this stuff that was so dysfunctional was very painful because the opening scene of the movie is witnessing my mother's adultery and the shooting is in the middle of the movie and then my father's absolutely bizarre funeral is the end of it. But Shall we just give a little... Oh, yeah, there was, a, there, was a, there was a priest that I was at school with called Becky Gumedza. He was a Swazi student who'd come to evangelical school in America and had come back under the mistaken belief that he could raise people from the dead. So my father had no religion whatsoever. He jumped Becky jumped into the grave. After asking you to speak at his funeral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He undid my father's casket and, you know, he was weighed 50 kilos or whatever. He was, he was dead. Yeah. And he tried to raise him from the dead in this great ululation and then fell on top of him in terrible distress because he felt that he'd failed. So he had to be pulled out of the grave. They then had to, you know, close up the box. So that was so surreal and Monty Python-esque. Yeah. Anyway, I put that, there was the final scene in the movie, but yeah. when we started previewing it with test audiences, they said, it is too weird to take. So I cut it so that it was a, just a conventional funeral. Anyway, I had the advantage of an extraordinary cast led by Gabriel Byrne, Emily Watson, Julie Waters, Miranda Richardson, Nicholas Holt play me when I was 14. As painful as it was to write, as joy-filled was it to then direct in the locations where all of this actually happened, as a middle-aged man having had analysis and going back and being in control over it as a writer-director. That was an extraordinarily healing and good creative process mm -hmm. to go through. Unfortunately, it was marketed in America as a Mother's Day light comedy, <laughs> um, which begins with a scene. With a, yeah. 
witnessing. Still being in a right. front seat of a 10-year-old doesn't really, it's not what it said on the tin. Anyone who bought that line, I'm sure they were immediately disabused of that. Anyway, so in the last few years, I think a, a whole new generation of people have discovered your work, people who weren't even alive for With Nell or you know, the Altman movies or, or other things. And part of that, I guess, you know, you could call it the HBO era in a way because it's not only girls, but Game of Thrones as well, mm -hmm. right? What has that been like? You now have been doing this long enough that you can walk down the street and probably meet a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter who all know you from different things. What you're saying is that I'm so old. <laughs> yes, no, thank you for that. No, it's true. You're absolutely right. Absolutely but what's right. What's that like? I mean, that te it's a testament, you know, you have... You've never claimed to be the guy in the Bruce Willis position who has a certain finite number of years where the movie is built around him and he better maintain his looks or else his value in the business sort of fades away. You are the thing that has always lasted the longest in terms of a career in Hollywood, which is a great, dependable character actor. And I think that you've embraced that. But after a certain number of years, it really is a testament that you know, you're still doing it at such a high level. And I guess the question that I want to really get at here is a lot of people who we read interviews with or profiles of or whatever, uh, you know, they say, well, I was offered this role and I was cast in this and then I did. And it sort of just falls into place for them. And it's a, for at least a short period of time, it goes according to a certain plan. They can map out their choices and all of that. As one of maybe, you know, the first people who comes to mind when you say great character actor, Richard E. Grant, what does that actually look like for somebody, you know, auditions don't go away, right? You still, maybe not for a while now after Can You Ever Forgive Me, but for the last few years, even though everyone knows and likes your work, you're not necessarily getting calls saying, come on, we, we need you here on this day because we're giving you this part, right? It's a, always a... You never stop auditioning. Right. Yeah, that's your point. No. Yeah. And I accept that that's just the way that it is. So... Do you like that, though? What do you make of that? Well, I met... I met one of my acting heroes, Donald Sutherland, many years ago in L.A. because my wife was coaching him. She's a dialect coach mm -hmm. for um, an accent in a movie. And I said to him, I think I was 34 or 35 years old, so half my lifetime ago, and I said, Donald, if I may call you that, at what point do you not have to audition or fan dance to kind of get the gig? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, You've got, you're thinking this all back to front. I said, what do you mean? He said... You've got to go into an audition thinking that you are auditioning them mm -hmm. to find out if they are the kind of people that you actually want to work for. And he said, if you go in with that mindset, you're going to have a better time. And he said, you have to accept that you never stop auditioning and that this should be something that you should be thrilled by rather than resentful of. And that literally changed my thinking about it completely. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I, I meet actors or hear about actors saying, no, I'm too grand or I'm too experienced, I won't read for this, I think you're insane mm -hmm. because you're doing yourself out of an opportunity. And don't assume that because you've done X number of work before, that that somehow gives you a right to get another job because it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Because each person wants to know that you are right for their project. So I'm still fan dancing and doing it no, willingly. It's so interesting. And this brings us basically up to 2018. And I want to just what for you was probably 2017 in the making of with Can You Ever Forgive Me, this, this great latest role, Jack Hawk. To set that up, you are on a testosterone filled set with the movie Logan when you then head from that to do this movie written by, directed by, and principally starring women. Mm -hmm. Can you ever forgive me? But just take us back even before that. What was the first even awareness that this project existed, and what was the process to getting that particular role? It was November 2016, and I got an email from my agent and a phone call to say, you have 24 hours to read the script. And as I said before, immediately quit back and said, is this mission impossible? Is it going to blow up in my face? And she <laughs> said, no, you have to decide because they start shooting in six weeks' time. I then said, who's dropped out? Who's dead? Whatever. And she said, leave the paranoia aside. This is not the question to be asking. And read it. So I recognised the writer. The writers, Nicole Holofcener and Jeff Whitty from Avenue Q, the musical, and what Nicole had written before, 
the director, Marielle Heller, who I recognise immediately from the great work that she'd done on her debut film, Diary of a Teenage Girl, and of course, Melissa McCarthy. I did not know the story of Lee Israel, the true story, even though I had her biography of Tallulah Bankhead, the 40s actress, on my bookshelf. Really? So it was a very, very easy decision to make. And six weeks later, I turned up on a Wednesday in January 20th in you know, 2017 in Manhattan, and we started shooting four days later. And I met Melissa for a couple of hours. On the one hand, this is coming back to the cyclical nature of, or the poetic nature of things. Your first role was as a alcoholic kind of bumbling guy. Mm-hmm. Here you are being asked once again to play an alcoholic the difference, though, is that this is a person literally who actually lived, not modeled after a person who actually lived. And yet there's not that much that's anywhere on the record about this person, photos, biographical stuff. So what was your thought process heading it in that six weeks between getting the part and playing it as far as figuring out what made him tick? I always look for a movie reference as soon as I read a script. And the obvious, the two obvious ones were two 60s movies. One was The Odd Couple with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau mm-hmm. because I thought this is, a tra- you know, these are opposites who are in a platonic but very, very quasi-marriage right. and very comical. And then the other one, more obvious because it's set in New York City, was John Schlesinger's masterpiece, which won Best Picture, Midnight Cowboy. Mm-hmm. And this completely dissolute, you know, Ratso characters. He was called, played by Dustin Hoffman so brilliantly, and John Voight's Joe Buck. So these, again, were two disparate characters living in New York, near destitute, in a city that is so rich and so populated and very, very lonely. So that really informed, I thought, well, this is the kind of dynamic of what this friendship is between these two people, Lee Israel and, and Jack Hock. And then I drew from real life because I was great friends and worked with a Scottish actor who died of AIDS in 1990 at the age of 40 called Ian Charlson, who was the lead in a movie, Chariots of Fire, the one best picture mm-hmm. in 1981. And he had this combination of boyish charm, scabrous wit, and an incredibly loose, very openly promiscuous lifestyle. So that really was the as much inspiration as I had from my personal life. And, you know, Jeff, Whitty, and Nicole's script kind of, you know, gave it to you. But I guess there's also something to be said about, obviously, from reading the script, you know that this character is aware of his fate even before the audience is. Yeah, HIV positive. Right. And that that perhaps explains why he was as willing as he was to take the trip with Lee and do some of the crazy things they do, right? Yeah. I mean, he was, Jack Hawk was, by all accounts, incredibly promiscuous, but he also was a hedonist. And I think that because I knew that he was HIV positive and, and he dies at the end of the story in the movie, he, that means that it gives you a great impetus and engine, if you like, for every scene that he's involved in where he is going to live the day, for the day, in the day, to the hilt, because if he's got 10 bucks in his pocket, he's going to burn that mm-hmm. just for the sheer enjoyment of it because there's no rainy day to be saved for because he doesn't have them. Right. So that gives you a kind of real energy and delight. You knew that you would be sharing most of your scenes with Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. And I think originally they wanted you to just dive right into the deep end with her. First day you were going to meet her was going to be day one of, of shooting, I think. On a Monday, yeah. You weren't thrilled about that, right? What was the, how did you get ahead of that, sort of establish a report with her? And, and then from working with her after that, what's your conclusion about what makes her so good? I have, I, you know, I'm, I'm paranoid by it to begin with. And it's not uncommon <laughs> in my profession. And... So when Marielle said that, oh, Melissa's only coming on the Friday and you start shooting on the Monday, she's got costume and makeup and wardrobe tests. You won't even meet her till Monday. Mm-hmm. I said to her, this is not, you know, I will not sleep for 48 hours. I have to meet her, <laughs> even if it's just for 10 minutes. Right. So to engage at what level she's going to pitch the part or, you know, whether we'd even get on. So they very, very generously carved out two hours of on a Friday morning and mercifully, Melissa had the exact same impulse. And so we met and then had lunch and talked to, to each other. And it was it was instantaneous where you know that you feel a trust with somebody and it's almost like, a, you know, a platonic version of coup de foudre where you know that you, you just feel seen by another person in a profound way. And we became instant workmates and friends on that and you know which probably had, helped the screen yeah, absolutely we had lunch every day on the set yeah. and uh, we stayed in contact so that was something that i've never experienced in quite that way before so playing 
a real on-screen friendship and all the vicissitudes of friendship that they go through, from the loyalty to the love to the inevitable betrayal and the poignancy of the reconciliation, knowing that Jack Hawk has got AIDS and is dying, all of that is traversed in the film and it really informed and it was helped by the fact that we got on so well and have stayed friends ever since. So, you know, that, that's, that's a bonus that you hope will happen, but, you know, the chemical reaction. Yeah. A couple other things. So I understand. Oh, and why is she so great? I have to say please, that. Please. Because Melissa McCarthy is incredibly emotionally present. By that I mean there is no subterfuge. There is no, you feel that there's no ulterior motive going on or somebody trying to sociopathically do you out of your moments on screen. And believe me, I've worked <laughs> with actors who do that by instinct. Few and far between, but enough to know that, you know, you can be left on the dust heap. Right. She's also incredibly collaborative, humane, hilarious and heartbreaking at once. And she manages to always walk that tightrope between the two, which is her unique gift. When you first saw, I guess, a rough cut of this movie through your most recent screening of it, whenever that may be, your feelings about the movie have evolved. Not that, basically, that you, you were not... Maybe this is wrong, but that when you first saw it before it was before Toronto, even mm-hmm. you were not necessarily as blown away as as you later became. I'm I was completely nonplussed because mm-hmm. I think that you know when you see it a screening with your agent alone in a room and there's nobody <laughs> else there, there's no laughter, there's no tears, there's nothing nothing to support any communal experience of watching a movie, which is what I love about going to a movie right. theater. All you see as an actor, and this is not just me talking here, all you see are your faults and your shortcomings. So I thought that I was a complete disaster in it. So (laughs) when you get the reverse response from an audience and critical approbation, that inevitably changes your mindset about it. So you, (laughs) you are forced into a kind of, I suppose, more objective understanding of what you've done. You know, I was there at the Toronto International Film Festival where people first went nuts for this and I've been following you ever since. And I think that one of the things that has really endeared you to a lot of people this season has been that you do something that a lot of other people pretend they're too cool to do, which is to acknowledge that it's pretty neat to be invited to the party and to be winning things and to be nominated for things. A lot of people are, they want to play like it doesn't phase them. You have been so fun to follow in person, on social media, most recently with Barbara Streisand, but with other things. And I think it's actually made people, you know, root for you even more. And and to some extent, cool things have happened as a result of it. How did, tell us about Chris Evans. There was just something that happened with Chris Evans. Chris Evans is not the Avengers actor yes. from America. There's a, there's a very, very famous radio and television personality called Chris Evans in England, who yeah. has a, a radio chat show and a TV show. And when I went on it, uh, last week in London, he gifted me the original shooting script of all my notes and all my sketches on it that I had auctioned off 20 years ago to raise money for the sc- bursary funds for the school that I went to in Swaziland. And so he also bought the Withnail coat so <laughs> at auction, the charity auction that we had. So when he gave it back to me, I felt it was incredibly emotional because I really felt that this was the talisman of the thing that had changed my professional and therefore personal life as well. So having that back was incredible. And to answer your your other kind smoke-blowing is that if you are, you know, I'm about to be 62 years old, I've never been nominated or awarded things before. So to have this happen at my age is so extraordinary and I can't be blasé about it. I'm absolutely made up. So I'm incredibly grateful for it and... And you're doing it with the same daughter, of course, who had put you into Spice World, it was called, the movie. You were with her on uh, exactly two weeks ago from today, prior to today. What was that morning like, if you can share what how it all unfolded? 22nd of January, I will never forget it. It was 1.30 English time. I was in a restaurant in Notting Hill in London. And she had a live feed of the Oscar nominations being read out on her iPhone on the table after we just finished eating. And we each had a, an earpiece in. And I saw that I think the first three names came up. And when I didn't see Timothy Chalamet, I thought, well, that, that, that's it. If he has not been named, there is no chance in hell that I will even, you know, get a squeak in this. And then I saw my name come up and we both looked at each other and it was... 
projectile tears absolutely instantaneously and where well, I literally had two minutes to, to take it on board before brilliant Fox Searchlight young publicist Nicole Wilcox, who's been literally my guide and mentor throughout this incredible process of the last five months. And she said, there are various people in the US that you need to speak to live. And I did. <laughs> Back to but work. I, I called Melissa immediately. Yes. <laughs> we were literally blubbering like, you know, embarrassing idiots at each other in total disbelief and pleasure, of course, of being both being nominated for this. And so you were... At a place, though, literally physically, that was of yeah. meaning to you, right? Yeah. I'd found that I'd parked just around the block from a bedsit studio apartment that I rented for $50 a week in you know 1982 when I first got to London. And I was a waiter. And literally, I could reach from each end to the other, and a bed was above the kitchenette. And it was absolutely minute. And I was parked around the corner from there. My daughter said, you should do a video that'll... 20-second snap mm-hmm. of of what this feels like. And, of course, I then put it online, and I, don't, I think within two days it had 3.4 million mm-hmm. hits, which is inconceivable that this no, should have No, but again, because, like, people... And I look at it now, and I look like a completely insane no, person. No, man, but it's just, this is the thing. Like, that is... For anyone, it's got to be the most exciting thing that could happen, and yet some people are just <laughs> play. Oh, you know, that was that was cool. Well, lucky for them if they can think that's cool to get, you know, go and go after an Oscar nomination in your it, life. You know, go figure that one out. I was just, I'm still in a state of complete astonishment. Last question. So you are now and forever Oscar nominee Richard E. Grant. Okay. You are Thanks, soon to be, uh, and maybe well, the, the nominee may uh, the nominee part may change, but they can't take away the Oscar part. You are soon to appear in Star Wars, a mm-hmm. Star Wars film. Yeah. I would imagine that the the phones may be ringing a little more after all of this than in the last few years. It's probably a, a exciting hot time to be Richard E. Grant. That's. Part one of the setup. Part two is that you wear two watches. I'm looking at them right now. One of them on the right is L.A. time, from what I've been told. On the left is Swaziland time Uh because that was a gift from your father, who I guess literally on his his deathbed. Mm -hmm. And this is all to set up the question, what would he make of this if he could see what this— has all turned out to be something that he was worried could all go down the toilet and you'd be doing all those things that you listed earlier. You know, as far as I know, you, you're, uh, you're not, I'm not in tights, not, in not tight. wearing makeup. That's it. Not, uh, and I'm intact. Yeah. I was about to say, so, <laughs> so I mean, if, uh, if he could see this, what would he say? I hope that he would be incredibly proud because, you know, there's that's still that part of every kid in you, no matter what age you are, you can watch me, dad, watch me, ma. You know, you want the approbation of your parents. And the fact that I have made such a good living out of it is beyond anything that he could have imagined. So I'm, I'm, I think he would have been, I hope he would have been proud. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. Congratulations. Thank it's you, Scott. You have a lot of editing to it's, do. No, it's been fun. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.